Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Our hosts, Dr. Larry Spargimino and James Collins, will be bringing two important messages for us today. Thank you for being here. Your continued prayers and financial support allow us to make sense of the nonsense in the world today. Visit our website and get access to one of the nation's largest collections of prophecy-related materials, with new items being added almost every day. SWRC.com. That's SWRC.com. Pastor Larry is here now with an excellent message on the glory of the second coming. The history of the world has been a history of conflict. Fallen humanity has infected everything. The greatest and most devastating pandemic is not the coronavirus or the bubonic plague. It is sin in the human heart. We all are infected. Well-meaning but terribly deceived individuals have attempted to create their own brand of utopia, a perfect society of equity and peace. Every age has had its own saviors who will solve the problems of humanity and bring in a perfect world. All have failed, and they have failed miserably. Egomaniacs have built up their military arsenals while their own people are dying of starvation and don't even have basic health care. And in the process of failing, they have produced wars and conflicts that have ravaged cities, farms, and the earth itself. When is this going to stop? At times, there seem to be reasons for optimism. A new scientific breakthrough that will increase the productivity of farmland or a medical advance or the end of a major war all provide people with optimism for the future. But that optimism is soon crushed as some other problem arises, a devastating flood, a belligerent nation, a famine, or some other crisis. Soon the optimism is sadly eroded by a flood of pessimism. While humans are highly sophisticated, their intelligence is often used for evil purposes. The history of humanity has been the history of failure. Depravity seems to be incremental. Human intelligence cannot produce peace, nor can it produce real happiness. Riches and power leave a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. Solomon learned the lesson quite well and made repeated statements as found in the book of Ecclesiastes, such as, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. It is for this reason that the second coming of Jesus Christ is one of the most significant events in human history. Jesus Christ will come to the earth to destroy the wicked and also establish a kingdom of such grandeur that far exceed the grandeur of all human utopias combined. Revelation 19 verse 11 and following gives us the details of the Lord's return with great power and glory. It's a message that comes to John in a vision. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Notice these three things. He comes in righteousness, he judges, and he makes war against those gathered for the final battle. The gathering of the enemies of God has occurred earlier in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, verses 12 and following. In verse 12, the sixth angel pours out his vial upon the great river Euphrates so that the way for the kings of the east might be prepared. Verses 13 and 14 tell us this gathering involves the false prophet. Quote, and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs 
come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils, that is, demons, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Verse 16 says, And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. That is certainly markedly different than the first coming of Jesus, that time when he came as a baby cradled in a feed trough. It is certainly different than when he comes at the rapture to catch away his church so that the wrath of God may come upon the earth but not upon his people. At the rapture, Jesus comes to take away his saints, but here at the time of the second coming, Jesus comes with his saints. Revelation 19 verse 14 says, And the armies which were in heaven followed him, upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. The fine linen, linen that is white and clean, describes the righteousness of the saints. The fact that many of the Jews in the first century expected the Messiah to be Israel's deliverer and did not realize that Jesus would come two times helps us to realize why Israel as a whole did not accept Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. His promises to overcome Israel's enemies and bring in justice, righteousness, and truth apply to a second coming. Therefore, the major reason many rejected him, despite his incredible miracles and the fact that he was the greatest teacher they had ever met, was because people wanted him to deliver Israel from the shackles of Roman oppression, not realizing that prophecies relating to his future kingdom of glory and peace refer to his second coming, not his first. When Jesus came the first time, he did not fit their expectations for Israel's Messiah, and therefore they rejected him. The purpose of his first coming was to suffer for the sins of the world, die on the cross, and rise from the dead, without which there would be no eternal life and forgiveness of sin. We who live in the church age have the benefit of being able to look back and determine which prophecies have already been fulfilled by his first coming and which have yet to be fulfilled in his second coming. In the second coming, it's like God now is saying, okay, humanity, humanity has had its chance to improve the world, and instead of improving the world, humanity has failed miserably. Now my son has come to fix everything, and he does that first by doing battle with the enemy. Revelation 19, 20, and 21 tells us this, and the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. I'm always impressed with the ease with which the beast and the false prophet are subdued. There is no battle recorded. There is no struggle recorded. It is not like two sumo wrestlers struggling and grunting and groaning as one tries to overcome the other. There is not the slightest doubt regarding the outcome of this encounter. The beast and the false prophet are cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Verse 21 adds another word showing our Lord's power. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. We must take note of the fact that the saints who come back with the Lord are merely observers, merely those who accompany the Lord Jesus Christ. He wins the victory on his own, not with the help of the saints. This lake of fire is the final hell and the place of, quote, everlasting fire prepared for the devil 
and his angels. Matthew 25:41. So Revelation 19, verse 11 and following, take the reader forward in time to the second coming of Jesus Christ, which occurs prior to the millennium. That means our Lord's return is premillennial. Further proof of this is seen by the words, And I saw in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. The words, And I saw, also occur in chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open. We also see the word, And, in verse 21. And the remnant were slain with the sword. The word, And, links the millennium of chapter 20 with the preceding material, once again suggesting that the millennium follows the second coming. Hence, our Lord's return is pre-millennial. We can safely say that there will be no kingdom on earth unless the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes first to the earth to establish his kingdom. Jesus rides a white horse, which was a mark of a victorious king in the Roman Empire. The Lord's main task on returning to earth is war. His eyes are pictured as glorious and intense, and he wears many crowns, a symbol of his great authority. Even at the time of our Lord's open manifestation, there are aspects of his person that are beyond comprehension. We are told in verse 12 that he has a name written on him that no one knows except Jesus himself. The meekness and gentleness of Jesus at his first coming is contrasted with his disposition and demeanor at his second coming. He will overcome the opposition. One day he will establish his reign on earth by force. He wears a robe dipped in blood, and he is accompanied by the armies that are in heaven who follow him on white horses wearing pure white linen. At his second coming, Jesus' weapon of choice will be his word, pictured here as a sharp sword that comes from his mouth, and his purpose is to strike the nations with it. Now, a lot of this is figurative language. It speaks about a sword, but the text tells us that it's really speaking about the word of God. Is the horse that Jesus rides really white? Is it really a horse? Remember, this is what John sees in his vision, but the message is quite clear. Jesus returns as conquering king. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. For those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Revelation chapter 19 causes great praise and rejoicing. When you think of the centuries of grief and suffering that people have had to endure on earth, when you think of communism, fascism, atheism, trafficking of human beings, and then know that now God has spoken, he has spoken powerfully and convincingly, his son has come to straighten out the world. This is why we can shout hallelujah. And this is exactly what happens. Revelation 19 verse 6 says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord God, omnipotent, reigneth. Yes, Jesus is reigning in judgment. There are several other passages in Scripture that speak of the second coming, and the order is the same as in the book of Revelation. There is tribulation and suffering, then the return of the Lord, and then the kingdom age, a time of great peace and blessing on the earth. In Zechariah 14 and verse 2, we read, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go forth into captivity. Verse 3 says, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Verse 9 speaks about the millennium. 
And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. We are now living in the day of man. Insanity and insane people seem to be running the show. But when Jesus comes back, he will usher in the day of the Lord. As a matter of fact, the words in that day appear 16 times in Zechariah chapters 12 through 14. Chapter 12, 3 says, And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. Verse 4 says, In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. Verse 6 says, In that day will I make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf. Verse 8 says, In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The return of Jesus ushers in a kingdom of justice. Our world is a world of injustice. Sixty million babies plus have been aborted, some in a very cruel and painful way in the U.S. since Roe v. Wade. Today, there are some 30,000 young women and children who are prisoners in the sex trade business. Every day, these girls are subjected to the most unimaginable abuse. Shockingly, some parents even resent Christian Ministries, another organization, rescuing their daughters from the trafficking market because it brings in the money and they're not ready to lose a steady source of income. The scriptures abundantly testify that the Lord is filled with compassion for the enslaved, the violated, the broken, the suffering, the oppressed, the outcast, the rejected, the afflicted, the forgotten, and poor, and the weak. Several scriptures tell us that when Jesus comes back, there will be be justice. Isaiah 42, 1 and following says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth justice to the Gentiles. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth justice unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set justice in the earth, and the isle shall wait for his law. Zephaniah 3.19 says, Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. Ezekiel 34.16 says, I will seek that which was lost, and bring again that which was driven away, and will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them in justice. Not only will the Lord Jesus lift up from the ashes the downtrodden and oppressed, but he will also take those who have oppressed others, those who have exalted themselves, and those who have used others as stepping stones to force their way to the top and to dominate people, such as communist leaders who have the most sophisticated equipment to spy on their people, and he will thrust them down and destroy them. Isaiah 2, verses 11 and 12 states, The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. Micah 6, verse 8 tells us what God is looking for, but cannot find in places of leadership and on the thrones of nations. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. 
And what about those who trouble and oppress Christians? Does the day of the Lord pose a threat for them? The answer is yes. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 says, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. But there is a blessing for those so troubled. Verse 7 says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. Because the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in great power and glory brings about the exaltation of the humble and the humbling of the exalted, we can say that the second coming of Jesus Christ brings about a great reversal. The earth today is so fundamentally unjust that only through such a great reversal can the earth be made just. So the day of the Lord will be the day when all wrongs are made right, and much of this present system will be fundamentally turned upside down and inside out. Yes, we can speak of the glory of the second coming. Christ will come in his glory, and he will establish a time of God's triumph and glory on the earth. The millennium will be a time when Christ rules politically and spiritually. Politically, the millennium will bring in a universal government that is completely authoritative and characterized by righteousness and justice with assurance for the poor and with an admonition and warning for those who violate Messiah's kingly rule. There will be those who seek to violate and counter Messiah's kingly rule, but Psalm 2 verse 4 and following says, He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Yes, friends, the glory of the second coming can be seen in the glory of the earthly kingdom that is established. Isaiah chapter 2 and verses 2 and following provide us with rich insight into Messiah's kingdom on earth. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth a law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All of this is indeed glorious. People will come to the city of the great king and honor the God of Jacob. But there is much more to this prophecy. It says, And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. If you'd like a copy of today's message by Larry Spargimino, call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order online, swrc.com. Keep your Bibles open as staff evangelist James Collins examines the blessings and curses that come from blessing or cursing Israel. The Bible says in Genesis 12:3, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, 
And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. In this passage of Scripture, God spoke to Abraham and said, I will bless people who bless you and curse people that curse you. And through your descendants, all the people of the earth shall be blessed. Wow! Abraham's relationship was so close to God that to bless or curse him was, in effect, to bless or curse God. Although this promise from God was made specifically to Abraham, it was also made to his descendants, the Jewish nation. In other words, God will bless those that bless Israel and curse those that curse Israel. I believe that's one of the reasons that God has blessed the United States since the reestablishment of the nation of Israel in 1948. We have been Israel's closest ally. Sadly, it seems that we now have in our government several aggressively anti-Israeli individuals. In particular, there are three women in Congress that defenders of Israel must keep a close watch on as their words reveal their deep-seated hatred toward Israel. Perhaps the most outspoken of these women is Representative Ilhan Omar, a Democrat from Minnesota. Omar, a devout Muslim and former follower of the radical Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, wears a hijab on the House floor and once stated that Israel has hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken the people and help them see the evil doings of Israel. This is in keeping with the hateful speech of Farrakhan, who has openly called Jews wicked and claims that Israel has exploited the American people. In keeping, Omar recently accused Israel of bribing American politicians. Ilian Omar has also supported a group known as the Council on American-Islamic Relations that many accuse of supporting various terrorist groups such as Hamas and Hezbollah through fundraising and money laundering. As if Representative Omar weren't bad enough, there are two other women in Congress that are equally dangerous and equally anti-Semitic. One who has become recently well-known is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a Democrat from New York. This outspoken young socialist worked on Bernie Sanders' failed 2016 presidential campaign. Ocasio-Cortez has referred to Israel's actions in defending her borders as a massacre and has openly praised British politician Jeremy Corbyn, who has openly worked to eradicate Zionism and also called for the total dismantlement of the nation of Israel. Equally disturbing are the statements of Rashida Tlaib, a Democrat from Michigan. Tlaib has called for aid to Israel to be completely eliminated as Israel doesn't fit the values of the United States. She has even gone so far as to suggest that U.S. senators who vote in favor of any action that could possibly be seen as having a positive connotation toward Israel as not being fully faithful to the United States. Now, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised by Muslims and socialists who have a negative attitude toward Israel, but I was shocked to learn that many young Christians today feel the same way. In a recent article appearing in the Wall Street Journal, some disturbing news was shared. A growing trend among evangelical Christians finds that they are less supportive of Israel than previous generations. This trend was also reflected in a survey by LifeWay, LifeWay recently surveyed more than 2,000 people. The results were shocking. 
Only 58% of evangelicals ages 18 to 34 hold positive views of Israel, compared with 76% of evangelicals over 65 years of age. Therefore, we can summarize that evangelicals in the millennial category are increasingly less supportive of Israel and also less supportive of the U.S. government's involvement with Israel in the Palestinian conflict. The Wall Street Journal article noted that some younger evangelicals sided with liberal Jewish groups in their criticism of the United States Embassy move to Jerusalem and the fatal shooting of a protester who approached Israel's border fence in Gaza that same day. Israeli officials said the tactics were a necessary defense of its borders. A 21-year-old evangelical Christian, Caleb Fitzpatrick, was quoted in the Wall Street Journal article as indicating he has become critical of Israel over what he says is the mistreatment of Palestinians. He said, quote, Human rights is a core issue to me. It is less important to me who has dominion over the northern part of historical Israel. Close quote. This view illustrates the generational divide that is opening up between young evangelicals and older evangelicals. However, the differences extend to larger issues as well. Younger evangelicals are also more likely to support tougher environmental laws, more liberal abortion laws, same-sex marriage, recreational drug legalization, and other serious issues that older evangelicals spent decades working against. The wavering support among younger American Christians has been noticed by the Israeli government. Since much of their country's revenue depends upon Christian tourism, the depth of the crisis hit us three years ago, according to Yuri Steinberg, the Israeli Tourism Commissioner for North America. He added, We realize we had to act now if we want to continue this bond with the faith-based community in the United States. The Bible makes it clear that Christians should be supportive of Israel. Israel as a nation is clearly identified as being special to God. The prophet Zechariah indicated that God considers Israel as the apple of his eye. That's in Zechariah 2.8. God's eternal purpose is to bless the world through Israel. Now, he's already done so in Jesus Christ, and that has resulted in salvation being from the Jews. And we find that in John 4, verse 22. The Bible clearly teaches that when we can see Israel surrounded by her enemies, we should know that the tribulation period is very near. Luke 21, verses 20 through 22. Now, while we should certainly apply that understanding to the physical military enemies of Israel, such as Iran, Turkey, and Russia, those nations mentioned in the Gog and Magog prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we also need to realize the implications of the ideological and political enemies of Israel. As can be seen by the dangerous remarks of our own American congresswomen, Israel is indeed surrounded by her enemies, right within the halls of the United States government. With the intricate balance of power in the world hinging upon a strong relationship between the United States and Israel, we must recognize that any shift in the U.S. political support for the country would result in the desolation of Israel and would open the U.S. up to the curses the Lord has promised for those who curse Israel. God has promised that whoever blesses Israel will be blessed by God. Therefore, we should take our support of Israel as a mandate from God. So I hope that you'll join me in praying for God's protection of Israel in the midst of her enemies operating within the halls of the U.S. Congress. In our Resource Center today, we have a book and DVD combo. 
Ed Heinsohn's DVD, Genesis, How It All Began, and the book, A Scientific Analysis of Genesis by Ed Blick. Get both for a gift of $50 or more. Call 1-800-652-1144. You can also order online, swrc.com. Tomorrow, we look at the myths of modern-day revival. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.